something that I sometimes say. Um, is that it's a, it's a great privilege to be a pastor at a community like this, um, where um, maybe unlike some other church settings that I've been part of, there's so much that happens in the course of our gathering together to worship God um, that it almost doesn't matter what the pastor gets up and says. <laughs> there's so much beauty and truth and um, connection with God through all the things that we do at Artisan. Um, and it's reassuring to me <laughs> to know that at the end of that, very little rises and falls on my oratory skills such as they are. Um, so thank you, uh, Joel and Autumn and Matt and Lauren and all of you. It's been already this morning a pretty significant experience for me to be here. So. I've been thinking about this new series concept for a long time. It started out maybe a year or so ago, and I was driving in my car, and for some reason I started to notice this trend in bumper stickers. And once I started to notice this trend, as is the way this thing kind of thing goes, I noticed it everywhere. Like when you buy a Nissan Sentra, you suddenly see them everywhere. Once I, I couldn't unsee this bumper sticker trend. It was everywhere. <laughs> and the trend was this. Um, I've seen these, these religious bumper stickers with a lot of words on them. Right? I mean, forget uh, the, the typographical disaster that that is, right, for a person who kind of is a font nerd. Um, but it was like somebody was trying to write a whole angry blog post <laughs> on a bumper sticker, right? They're, like they're trying to explain every little thing about their faith in a three by ten inch space. And I thought to myself, rather smugly, my faith won't fit on a bumper sticker. No matter how small the type is. But the other thing that I realized is I began to make the, a mental collection of these Christian bumper stickers and I, I, I made a visual collection of them too that you could uh, maybe enjoy. But what I, what I started to notice was that The word fit can mean a couple of different things. And when, when I say my faith won't fit on a bumper sticker, I actually maybe mean two different things. See, there's two reasons why something won't fit on a bumper sticker. One is it's too big. And one thing is that it's the, the other thing is it's the wrong shape. Okay? So something can't fit. Maybe it's because it's too big to fit. Maybe because it's the wrong shape to fit. And what I began to realize as I made this mental collection of these ridiculous bumper stickers was that not only is my faith in something that is so deep and profound that it could never fit in size on a little sticker that you put in your car, but my faith is also not quite the right shape. It doesn't quite fit the, the, the type of 
slogan-based religion that tends to make its appearance on these stickers. And that has less to do with its size and more to do with its shape. See, bumper sticker faith, if you will, is small, but it's also smooth. Fits on your car window, but it also fits into the perfectly round peg hole that you imagine faith to be. And what I would like to celebrate during this whole series is that my faith, your faith, our faith, the way that we express it, doesn't fit on a bumper sticker. It's too big, and it is not smooth and round. Because here's the problem with a faith that is small and round and smooth. It's not consistent with what Jesus preached and taught. Jesus did not preach and teach a small, smooth faith. He didn't teach small religion. He preached an enormous faith that was rough around the edges and that defied the conventional wisdom of the folk-level religious practice of his day. And Jesus doesn't allow us the luxury of having a bumper sticker faith not an option for us. If we're devoted to him, to Jesus, rather than to any of the million other distractions, both cultural and religious, that tempt us away from the truth, if we're devoted to him, we won't be able to hold on to the simple, comfortable, pureed Christianity in a jar kind of faith that we sometimes wish we could have. I'm going to give you three examples this morning of Jesus' teaching, and only three. There's tons and tons of this stuff in the New Testament. And I think that you will agree, after reading these passages and looking at them together briefly, that Jesus didn't teach a small, containable, smooth, pureed faith in a jar. The first example is one of his encounters with the Pharisees, who were the religious experts and teachers of the day. And most often when he was talking to the Pharisees, as many of you know, he was railing against their legalism. And this is no exception. This is from Mark chapter 2, maybe 23 through 28. There are red Bibles around the sanctuary under your chairs and in the seat pockets. Um, if you'd like to follow along in those Bibles, you can page 814. If you brought your own, um, that probably means you can find Mark 2 on your own without a page number, but uh, feel free to use the table of contents if you have to. Mark 2:23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? You see, it was not lawful to, to do any harvesting on the Sabbath. It was a religious day of rest, and even just plucking heads of grain and popping them in your mouth broke the rules according to the Pharisees' interpretation of the Sabbath regulations. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God when Abiathar was high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat 
and he gave some to his companions. Now, this is another Old Testament reference. The explanation is contained in that, so we won't go any deeper into it. Then he said to them, this is the most important thing, the Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. See, the Pharisees had a bumper sticker faith. Their spiritual life consisted of following simple rules. They probably had bumper stickers. If they had a car, their bumper sticker might have said, not even one head of grain or something like that. <laughs> that was how they expressed their, their religious belief, following rules, simple rules, a lot of rules to be sure, but rules for their own sake, not for the purpose of spiritual growth. And in fact, the Pharisees wanted to go beyond the actual regulation. They did what they called putting a hedge around the law. It's like, here's, the, here's what we actually have to observe to be in God's good graces, and we're going to plant some bushes all the way around that so that we can't even get close to the edge. And Jesus didn't actually seem to be very concerned with the letter of the law in this case, but rather with its spirit. This verse is one of the most profound things in the New Testament. It explains, the, not just for the Sabbath, but by extension, the purpose of the entire law. It's for the good of the people. <laughs> the Sabbath law was created for their sake. And Jesus is saying, you seem to think that people were made just so they could follow these rules. No, it's the other way around. And he led his disciples to live a life that went beyond religious rules and regulations. And in this way, he demonstrated the grace that was offered to them through himself. That's the first example of Jesus' teaching. The next one is from Matthew chapter 5. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. chapter 5, verses 12, and, and the section that I'm referring to goes all the way through verse 48, but I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to try to give you the form of what he's doing in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. This will be familiar to some of you. What he does in this section of the Sermon on the Mount is he, he refers to a, an Old Testament law. He says, you have heard it said that, the first one here is, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. And then what he says is, but I say to you, and this form is repeated throughout this section, you have heard it said, X, but I say to you, Y. In this case, he says, but I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. The next one's about adultery. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Look at verse 38. You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. 
Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So at first, this teaching seems to be the opposite of what he was doing with the Pharisees. With the Pharisees, he told them that they were observing too much of the law, essentially. And with this teaching, he's telling his disciples that they weren't observing enough of the law, that the law wasn't enough to make them holy. Not even close, in fact. He's taking the commandment against murder and extending it to insulting somebody, placing the same judgment on both. He's saying, you don't just have to love your neighbors, you have to love your enemies. And on and on and on throughout the whole section here. But what seems to be the opposite teaching, I think turns out to be the same teaching. These disciples had a bumper sticker faith too. It was concerned with what was on the outside, not with what was on the inside. See, unlike the Pharisees who wanted to add extra rules just to be safe, these disciples apparently wanted to observe just enough of the rules to be considered holy. And in this case, Jesus wanted to show them that the true requirements of holiness were above and beyond, far and away past what they could ever hope to achieve. In fact, he concludes this teaching, if you look at verse 48, by saying, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the bar is not the Mosaic law, which is hard enough as it is. The bar is godly perfection. And in this way, he prepared them to receive the grace that would be offered through himself. So you're beginning to see that this bumper sticker faith is insidious, it's tricksy. One moment it tempts us to reduce life to excessive rule following, and the next moment it tempts us to do the absolute bare minimum. And it swings us in this direction, and it swings us in the other direction, and we can't win because we can't walk that line, and so we grab one side or the other. Total legalism, or total, the nerdy word would be antinomianism, lawlessness, and we pick the one we like and we slap it on a sticker and put it on our car and drive around feeling self-righteous. But they are both fallacies. Jesus is not interested in letting us get away with either one because as hard as it might be to observe the rules, that's actually a fairly easy way to practice a certain type of religious faith if you think about it. He's not interested in letting us get away with either of those two easy paths. Let me give you a third example of his teaching. This is in John chapter 6. See, the other thing Jesus isn't interested in letting us get away with is a life that's based on slogans, even if, even if those slogans come straight out of the Bible. Jesus is not interested in letting us get away with a life of slogans even if the slogans come right out of the Bible. And this, this uh, refusal to let people get away with that kind of thing actually cost him a lot of followers. The Bible doesn't tell us how many, 
but we know that the number started in the thousands and went way down from there. It's, uh, this story happens immediately after he performed what might be his most well-known miracle, which is the feeding of 5,000 people. Remember this story with the kid and the loaves of bread and the fish, and it just keeps going and going and going and multiplying, and everybody eats, and there's some left over. And it's an amazing miracle. We're going to look at it in a little while whenever we get back to our ongoing series through the book of John. Um, but it's an amazing miracle, and the people love it. But after Jesus performs this miracle, he retreats. He goes away. He tries to escape the crowd a little bit. And what do they do? They chase him down, and they find him. And what they say to him essentially was, that miracle was pretty great, but show us more. And Jesus' response was, so Jesus. <laughs> it's such typical vintage Jesus. He turns it right on its head, throws it right back in their face. I mean, in a loving way. <laughs> Let's look at it together. John 6, and we're going to read verses 30 and 31. Uh, and then we're going to jump ahead a little bit. So here's what happens. They, they chase him down, and they find him, and they, say, they said to him, What sign are you going to give us then, so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, and here they quote, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. You can see that these early disciples of Jesus, this huge crowd that had gathered and been fed, they wanted to, to fit this miracle man into, into their religious paradigm, if you'll allow me to use kind of a trite, overused term. They quoted their scriptures back at him, referring to that story in the Old Testament when the Israelites were brought out of slavery in Egypt and they wandered in the wilderness and they had no food and God provided for them bread from heaven which was called manna uh, which in Hebrew just means what is that? <laughs> That's literally what it means. They wake up in the morning it's covered with the ground is covered with this snowy white bread stuff and they say what is that? And that's what manna is. So then centuries later Jesus takes these two loaves of bread and a few fish and feeds 5,000 people with it. And what do they say to him? Well, you know, our ancestors in the wilderness got their bread from heaven. I don't know, maybe you could show us something like that? They expect him to live up to their religious expectations. They even quoted scripture at him. Foolproof, right? If we're having an argument and I quote scripture at you, it's done. I win, <laughs> unless, unless you're Jesus. <laughs> Jump ahead to verse 47. Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh? They're probably with him right up to that last word. <laughs> yes, preach it, Lord. You're what? 
Whoa, whoa, whoa. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And some people at the back of the crowd trickled away. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And he looked up, and there were fewer. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. And a few more people were gone. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate, and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this teaching is difficult. (laughs) Who can accept it? In verse 66, because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So in this bizarre teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, Jesus is clearly predicting his death and what will eventually become Holy Communion. But even more than that, he is placing himself at the center of the spiritual universe. He's saying none of these other things will save you. Miracles will not save you. Bread from heaven is not enough to save you. You eat it and you die. The Bible won't save you. You think you have it figured out because you can quote that verse at me. That is not the key to, the, to, to, to eternal life. Rules won't save you, whether you're doing the bare minimum or whether you're going above and beyond so that no one could ever keep up with you because you're the greatest rule follower in the history of the world. None of these things will save you, Jesus says. Only I can save you. And that is what I want this series to be about. I want it to be about Jesus. And I want us all to remember that only He can save us. None of the bumper sticker faith that we want to embrace is going to save us. Only He can save us. So here's what's going to happen in the next few weeks. Next week, we're going to talk about having a bulletproof faith. It's not a bang bullet. Um, It's a the deputy likes dots bullet. Um, You know how sometimes you, you ask somebody, what do you believe? And they say, well, about what? And you say, I don't know, the Bible. Okay, here's what I believe about the Bible. Dot, dot, dot. What about salvation? What do you believe about salvation? Here's what I believe about salvation. Dot. Dot, dot. You can sometimes find these on church websites too. What do you believe about creation? Ah, here's what I believe about creation. Dot, dot, dot. And it could be whatever. You know, it could be the very conservative one or the very liberal one or anything in between. But if you got it on a list with dots, bullets, you're probably pretty happy with yourself. And what we want to do is cultivate a bulletproof 
faith because our faith does not fit on a list. The week after that, I'm going to make a lot of you angry. We're going to talk about God and country. My faith will not fit on the flag. It's election season. It's time to talk a little politics. And of course you all know that the other side absolutely must not win this upcoming election. Because if God is going to work His will in His chosen nation, the United States of America, <laughs> we need to elect the right person or people, right? September 23rd, don't miss it. Of God and country, my faith won't fit on the flag. And I'm going to, I'm going to make you angry whether you're a conservative or a liberal. Even if you're like me or one of those smug, self-righteous moderates, you're going to get angry too. <laughs> It'll be fun. Um, the next week, September 30th, is our fifth Sunday festival, and uh, we're going to talk about how our faith won't fit indoors. We love this building. We just bought it. We put a brand new roof on it. Doesn't it look great? Next spring, we're going to expand it, you know, unless the, the variance board gets angry at us or something. Um, we love this building, but our faith is too big to fit in this place. No matter, we could extend it all the way to whatever state is in that direction. I don't know. And it wouldn't be big enough to contain our faith. And so we're going to get outside these walls. We're going to come together, have a brief gathering, and then we're going to go. And we're going to do service projects all around the neighborhood. And then we'll come back and have our fifth Sunday potluck. It'll be a great time. And then in the last week, I'm going to hold out on you a little bit, but the title of that is Worshiping an Uncontainable God. And I think that one's going to be particularly interesting for us. So what I'd like to do is encourage your participation in two ways. One is a high-tech, nerdy way, and the other is a very practical, hands-on way. And I would like you to do both of these things if you can, and I'd like all of you to do at least one of them. The high-tech, nerdy way is that we are going to talk about this series on our social networking things, right? So some of us have already started playing with this Twitter hashtag, my faith won't fit. Um, if you're a Twitter user, I would love for you this week to, to make some posts. Just think about your faith and, and what expectations maybe people have on you and say, my faith won't fit in those. Awesome. Thank you, Elliot. <laughs> um, and notice, if you will, Twitter power users can tell you if you put the apostrophe in there, it will break the hashtag. So don't put the apostrophe in there. But you can do this on Facebook, too. Um, it doesn't quite work as well on Facebook, but you know, more people are on Facebook. And this is not to, again, to be smug about things, to say my faith won't fit. It's to get you to think about and actually express the ways that you think your faith is bigger than what people's expectations might be. It's bigger than what your expectations maybe were at one time. So jump on your social media networks and and do this stuff. My faith won't fit. That's the nerdy uh, kind of esoteric way. The very hands-on practical way is that um, for this fifth Sunday service project thing, we don't actually have any service projects lined up. And so I need some help with that. Um, I'd like those of you who live in the neighborhoods surrounding the church to ask around and see what people need. If you know the neighborhood organizers, the, the neighborhood association people, ask them what needs are around here. If you don't, then just ask your neighbors. 
hey, my church is going to be doing some service projects on the 30th. We would love to come by and help you out. If it's an elderly person who needs leaves raked, that's great. If it's somebody who wants their whole house painted in a day, I, I bet we could do it. But we could paint a lot. Um, we want to be a service and a loving presence in our neighborhood. Uh, and we'll, we'll do some street cleanup, no doubt. That's the simplest thing. But we would really prefer to be actually interacting with people in the neighborhoods and, and helping them out with whatever we can help them out with. So those of you who live in this neighborhood, would you promise me that you will ask around in the next week or so and uh, get in touch with me and maybe we'll put together a list and, and between now and then somebody with administrative metal will uh, come and help me organize that service project. But we're going to do it on the 30th, even if it just means, oops, we forgot and we're just going to clean every street we can reach in an hour. Um, because Ultimately, your faith can't fit in my sermons, right? Even with all the beauty that happens in worship here, your faith can't fit just here for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. Your faith has to explode beyond those barriers. You can't just be kind of a passive participant, observer rather. You have to be a participant. So you can do that in these very simple ways. Go crazy with your social media, those of you who love that stuff, like I do, and go crazy with your neighborhood, um, those of you who love that stuff, like I also do. Right. As we move toward communion, I want to offer you this meditation, um, which Autumn referred to just before we started looking at these things together. Ephesians chapter 3 18 and 19. This is my prayer for you during this series, just as it was prayers, or Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. Um, this is my prayer as we think about how our faith won't fit. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with with all the fullness of God. I invite you now to participate in that sacrament that Jesus hinted at in John 6. It drove his casual followers away, but later when he instituted the Lord's Supper with his closest followers, it drew them closer. And it's offered to you and to me to draw us closer to him, closer to each other, which is why we call it communion. We have an open table at Artisan. You don't have to be a member of our church or our denomination. You just have to be a Christian. You just have to be, if you don't like that word, it's okay. You just have to be following Jesus. You have to be looking to him, not to all these other distractions. And this is the place where we look to him. So as we continue to sing and hear music, uh, you can come, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice, whatever is more appropriate for you and for your family. Receive it as food for your souls. And our kids will be, will be coming back in shortly, and, and you can involve them in that as well if you'd like to. Um, respond to the Word of God uh, as you hear the Spirit's call. <laughs>